Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks, your essential guide to writing a sitcom for TV or radio. Those who can do, those who can't teach, and those who can't do either of those make podcasts. <laughs> Hello, my name is James Carey. Uh, with me is my co-host, Dave Cohen. Hello. We, uh, we do the podcast under the watchful gaze of our producer, Katie Story. Hello. And we also have a guest with us who's going to chip into this podcast uh, now and then, uh, and future podcasts as we uh, go through, because we're obviously recording a bunch of podcasts at the same time. Please welcome TV and comedy critic for The Times, Alex Hardy. Hello. Welcome to you, Alex. Um, in a moment, we're going to be talking, uh, sorry, in the next podcast, we'll be talking about um, critics and comedy, but for now, uh, we're going to uh, talk about uh, the first 10 pages, and then after that, we're going to talk about jokes, mm. which is a good thing to talk about on a sitcom podcast, and yep. Dave's got a few thoughts on that. Well, yes, I mean, it is, uh, it's amazing uh, how often uh, writers forget to put jokes into their sitcom. It's very easily done. Yeah, it is easily done, because there's so many things that you're, you're doing, you're trying to get right, and along the way, there's so many rewrites of your script. You spend so much time establishing your characters, trying to get your stories going, and then you go through all the various processes, and then by the time the final draft that's being shot gets made suddenly uh, there's this horrible realisation that actually uh, this is as David Tyler said in our last podcast people talking yes and uh, so we'll forget what to, yes. uh, forget to put jokes in or if we're being kind this is efficient rather than funny <laughs> yeah. so we'll come to that in a moment but first we're going to look at our first 10 pages um, uh, so uh, we did a podcast on the subject of the first 10 pages of your script a few uh, months ago or weeks ago or episodes ago depending on how you are uh, downloading this podcast. And we opened this up to our listeners, and our inbox has been... I mean, bulging would be overstating it slightly, but... Pleasant, nice, pleasantly pinging. Pleasant, <laughs> pleasantly <laughs> pinging yeah. uh, with people's first ten pages. And um, uh, so we fished one or two out of the inbox, and we're going to talk about them, uh, talk about one in a moment. If you want to read the scripts uh, as we're talking about them, you can do that. You need to go to our Facebook page uh, and like us and have a look for a link to the first 10 pages secret page, um, which you can download a PDF, um, which our willing volunteers have uh, cheerfully agreed to. Just a couple of things I should say ahead of this as well. Thank you very much, all of those of you who have sent the scripts. The rest of you keep sending them. Uh, obviously, these are our opinions. This is James and my opinion. And uh, This does not constitute legal advice. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think, you know, don't, we're not necessarily absolutely 100% right all the time. In fact, we may end up disagreeing with each other. Well, yeah, we're mostly right most of the time, though, Dave. Come on, let's not okay. undersell ourselves. All right, okay. <laughs> no, no, true. This is just um, frippery and nonsense, in our own opinions. Opinion. And uh, what we can do is talk about the things that um, technically might be uh, a problem and our first reactions with them. Because as we keep saying, I think, and as I um, blether on about in my book, your script is your calling card and you really want your script to work as hard for you as possible and get you work um, because it is extremely unlikely that the script that you have written will finally make it onto TV Sheer law of averages and um, statistical uh, attrition means that your script actually is as much a calling card as anything else. So we're going to talk about um, a show called uh, Ivy View, uh, which is by... I've suddenly had a blank on who, who it's by. Those Three Girls. Those Three Girls. Carly, Lucy and Susie. That's um, fantastic. Thank you for yeah. writing this. Thank you. Yeah. And um, just to describe roughly... 
the, the the story of it is that there is a rundown gothic mansion in the middle of nowhere, and it's called Ivy View, no vacancies, and uh, Sarah and Liam are checking in uh, mm. to this place, and they are met by a lady called May, Mary. who is uh, a, a lisping country bumpkin, enthusiastic but gullible, and then there are a couple of um, relatives of hers we see later, or people who also work there, Austin, um, Michael, who's a child who we don't yet see, and Vivian. And then we go back to Sarah and Liam in this room that they're ushered into, which is extremely unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And then we cut back to um, the kitchen for breakfast. Yes, they're about to... This is obviously uh, the first time that they have spent a night uh, together. And so, but they're, um, I think they're hoping to consummate the relationship, I think we say. But, of course, this being sitcom... Uh, it's not going to happen. And uh, so, I mean, I'd just like to start by saying I think the, this point, and again, it's only the first 10 pages that we've seen, I didn't get a sense necessarily that this was actually a sitcom. It felt more like uh, something, more like more like a, a, a dramatic story. I mean, there were good jokes in there and things, but uh, I'm not aware really that, the, that the, I didn't feel that the characters were the sort of people who we would see week in week out. Uh, possibly the first, possibly the uh, the people who run the place. But the, the show starts with these uh, this couple. Um, one of the first things also I noticed that um, the first the, the description of the each of the characters. They're uh, a little bit over-described. We've introduced to Sarah, 30, cheery girl next door, able to find positive in any situation, an overachieving former head girl. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's another two sentences. Um, it's just it's nice to sort of find out about the characters when we hear what they have to say. Yes, you do need to show it rather than just tell us everything. Um, I think that's right. And I think uh, the reason I think that uh, you're finding it hard to work out what this is, Dave, is because we are struggling to know who this script is about because mm. what is what is being set up here firstly when you get a gothic mansion you're thinking this is going to be some kind of horror parody that would say to me that there's going to be some kind of you know uh, a young couple checking into a nasty looking rundown gothic mansion implies that someone's going to be horribly killed but once it actually gets going it doesn't it feels like it's more of a place which is incompetent and weird mm. rather than horror. But then you hit, but here's the big problem. I think if it's called Ivy view and therefore I'm led to believe that this show is about this place, but almost all of your dialogue is from your guests. Now your two guests, Sarah and Liam, I presume aren't going to stay there forever. Maybe, maybe mm. they are. But it seems odd that most of the dialogue in the first 10 pages is the guests who presumably we're not going to see again next week. Mm. So, whereas actually the people who run the place, Mm. we're we're not really getting much evidence of, and we get sort of hints of it. So, part of my my Simon Cowell test is, after 10 pages, Mm. do I want to read more? I do want to read more, but only so I can work out who the show is about. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious as to know who I'm meant to be following. Because, I, I, I um, had, yes, I had the same problem. And, and I think that kind of got in the way of, uh, for me, was just I kept thinking, hang on, it's about Sarah and Liam. No, oh, suddenly we're getting this family. And, and it does make sense from that point of view. If it's just like a sort of updating of, of, of uh, the Adams family or the Munsters or something, then, then fair enough. But, but it's, 
it starts so kind of dramatically with this couple uh and the the, the couple so much seem to be the kind of central the, the, the central characters of the show and i had this before when i've read lots of first 10 pages and, and i've said to people uh i don't really get what their character is and they say oh well this is just the this is just the opening scene and they're not in it much for the rest of the show um but as james and i have said before when you're doing your first 10 pages you need we need to really see all the main characters as soon as possible we need to know what the story is going to be as soon as possible we need to know where that it's set as soon as possible and and as james said we 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 get there at about page six with uh we've got oh it's ivy view oh it's this mad family that run it and then and i guess as you say that's probably what it's going yeah. to be i mean i wonder also um i think the league of gentlemen have got a lot to answer for um because they did league of they did some people would say that uh league of gentlemen is a sitcom uh, I, don't, I don't think it is mm. i think it's very funny but it's not a sitcom and then they sort of do psychoville and they do inside number nine and they set up this idea that you could sort of do these I, th- I think once with the League of Gentlemen, you can do those things. Mm. But I think I, I wonder if it's like, oh, it's going to be a different couple every week, and it's going to be. You think, well, that's fine, but you're focusing on the wrong area. Um, so for me, so I, I like Dave. I, th- I thought there were some nice jokes here, and actually, it zipped along pretty well. It was very readable, and that is hard to do. So please don't go thinking that you know that this we're being too down on this. It is. It is very readable, and. And I know that that is no uh, small thing in itself. Uh, but overall, I just think there's a setup problem here. And we're setting up something that feels like it's going to be horror, but then isn't, unless there's something to come in pages 11 mm. to 32. Or that there is a mystery here, or um, I don't really know what I'm looking at. That's that's um, one problem. If I have another little um, thing that we can learn from that... Um, that is worth just worth pointing out is there are a few bits of dialogue here that people only ever say on television. Um, there's a line where someone says, must I think of everything? You really stretch my patience at times. No human being has ever said that apart mm. from me just then. Um, people don't talk like that, um, even in sitcoms. So um, unless you're being really arch and, um, and parodying, which I don't think you are, then you just need to sort of, look at those lines and you know, sometimes when you just read it out loud you realise that something feels very uh, written or uh, like we've heard that line before or that it's a placeholder line so actually there were I, th- I thought in places it was actually very nicely written there's odd little lines of dialogue that sort of jump out like the, the first line of the, this uh, horrendous uh, housemaid may uh, uh, what, what do we have here then dripping all over my porch in the middle of the night I thought it's a very nice yeah there's this horrible vision of a figure yeah. and it comes out and it's just dripping all over the porch it's obviously rain but I mean it, yeah. just, it, it really evokes a very very powerful atmosphere and I did I, I, I thought I, the I, comeback I, on that's pretty good as well where he says yeah. Barack and Michelle Obama yeah. which I think is a yeah. funny yes. funny comeback yeah. and I thought also Sarah the main seems to be the main character in the ten pages I do like her chirpy upbeatness and finding the positives in every situation. I thought that was very good. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really clear. So the, I think the characters that you've set up are clear. I just don't know which of the characters we're meant to be um, following. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, the very last thing is whether... Does, does this place really exist? Do I believe it? When they're shown the room, the room sounds awful. And part of me is just thinking, I, 
I don't think you'd stay there. I think you would go somewhere else. If you got there by car, you just get in your car and go somewhere else. Um, so there were sort of logical problems. Also, there's she somehow booked it via the internet, and yet the person mm-hmm. who works there has never really heard of the internet. And you sort of think, I, there, you're stretching plausibility sort of too often, really. So mm-hmm. I just think you need to look at those sort of plausibility issues because they just sort of get in the way and get in the way of the good dialogue and the jokes and the characters and stuff. So, um, yeah. But yes, uh, excellent. Thank you for sending it. Thank and, you for uh, sending it. It is no, it is, it is a big deal to do that. And we're yeah. very grateful that you have. And I, I hope that also our podcast can help you to, um, maybe, uh, improve it or try something else or just, just push you further along because, you know, there is evidence of good writing here. So there's lots to be cheerful about. Hmm. Okay, excellent. So, lots of good jokes. Lots of good jokes, in fact. There are jokes, talking of jokes. um, uh, Dave has been thinking deeply about (laughs) jokes. Um, uh, But before we turn to Dave, uh, Alex, hello. Hello. Uh, How do you feel about jokes? Um, I sometimes sense Mm. that critics find jokes rather vulgar. Oh, I definitely love a good joke. Um, I I suppose... um, what I'd say is that you get the verbal jokes, the visual jokes, you can get jokes in character or catchphrase, or there are all kinds of different ways jokes can be delivered. And I suppose more and more, sometimes it's through tone or atmosphere. We're seeing a lot more comedy dramas where perhaps the gag rate isn't as high, but they're finding the funny and or the strange in other kind of ways. So um, it is interesting, I think, to see how that ratio has tipped um, recently. And there are I suppose you've got some of the really gag-heavy sitcoms and then you've got those that trade more on atmosphere and strangeness. Mm. Um, there's room for both. Different people like different things. Mm. But, um, and I, but um, it is terribly frustrating when there just aren't enough jokes. It's, mm. it's, I do remember some... Uh, this, was, this was picked up by a lot of comedy writers on Facebook. At, mm. uh, there was a, a review of a TV programme. Uh, it said something along the lines of... Uh, like all great comedy it doesn't need jokes or something mm. something like that <laughs> and uh, obviously everybody went absolutely crazy about this but but i mean uh, that, that there is a sense that um that the, the the verite of of the sort of non-audience show has kind of allowed people does sometimes allow people mm. to get away without being as funny as we would want them to be do you do you get that much I, I think so and I think there is as I say I think there is room for both sort of tones but but at the end of the day if we're, we're all sort of massive comedy fans mm. you do want a deeply satisfying joke don't you so like, yeah. well that's interesting you say that and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to this in, in future podcasts but um, we are comedy fans and yet a lot of people who watch comedy are not comedy fans and after mm. a long day's work they just want to have a laugh and so mm. I think you, you've got the sort of the vintage boutique comedy, which probably does slightly turn its nose up at j- jokey jokes. And then you've got the more, much more broad mainstream jokes um, that people who just like laughing mm. uh, will watch in the mainstream hits, which actually mm. um, critics in the industry and various people can be a little bit snobby about. But actually, you know, it's, this, is, this is just comedy for everyone rather than comedy for people who like comedy, if that makes sense. But anyway, we are probably drifting too far away into the um, into the uh, theoretical jokes. But yeah, so I mentioned at the start of the show how um, we we do kind of occasionally overlook the fact that, that that we need to have more jokes, and and obviously there are there are jokes. There's panel shows. There's there's stand up comedians. But I mean, in terms of sitcom 
Uh, James, I mean, when you're, how do you see? I mean, when you're when you're looking for jokes, you're looking mainly for sort of character jokes generally. Yeah, you're looking for. It was interesting. It's um, how when we were trying to put clips together for for Bluestone Four Two, how few lines we had that kind of work well in a trailer, mm. and that's kind of that was an interesting experience. Um, there were very few jokes that you could just clip out other than have explosions and people sort of swearing, but you can't have people swearing in trailers, unfortunately. Um, there was one joke where he says, do you know why they're... So Afghanistan bomb disposal. Um, do you know why they're called booby traps? Because they get trodden on by tits like you. It kind of works as a joke. Yeah. You know, especially then when Millsy just says, really? Is that, so is that true? Yeah. Like, no, it's not true. Yeah. Um, so we, ha- we had the occasional joke like that, mm-hmm. which kind of... In one sense, they're sort of a bit black adderish or something, where they kind of have those. Your brain is so minute that if a hungry cannibal cracked your head open, there wouldn't be enough inside to cover a small water biscuit. Kind of joke. Um, I think if you're using too many of those, you've probably got a bit of trouble. Um, you've just got people saying funny things, and actually, yeah. you want people being funny without realising it, ideally, and sort of clashing against each other in ways that we find funny. Um, in a sense, the people in the sitcom shouldn't really find themselves funny. Um, you should be setting things up that that we, the viewer, find funny, which is, you know, obviously a bit of a strange relationship. I think one of the problems is as well when you're writing jokes, um, you don't always know whether a joke is funny, and 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 this is true of whatever level of writer you are. You don't know if a joke is funny until you try it out, and that's partly why people write so much in pairs isn't it really because of because the first person if you can't actually persuade the person who's sitting in the room with you that what you've <laughs> written is funny uh then you're going to struggle to get beyond that and so um that's that's a good reason to write with another person i mean I, I, you you've written on your mm. own and you've written uh yeah. with, with another partner i mean yeah. how, how how do you find it when you're kind of coming up with jokes or a sitcom where you're the only writer, for instance. How? I think undoubtedly when, when I'm writing um, with someone else, um, normally with Richard Hurst, I'm usually fairly confident that the script that we produce between us is probably funnier than the script that I've written on my own. Um, and when I've written a script on my own, I'm probably more reliant on the producer. When I was writing on my own, I worked a lot with one particular radio producer who was sort of almost like a writing partner, but was also a very good person for just saying, there aren't any jokes on this page. Mm. And it'd be a bit brutal, but I would sort of yeah. say, well, um, if you, uh, yes, okay, there are no jokes. If you say page. that line in a funny voice. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think it does help because it is just, it is so brutal, this process. Mm. And that's why in either case, we've tried to have read-throughs of the script. Um, for the last series of Blue we had at least two read-throughs of every script before we got to the big read-through before we went off to South Africa to shoot it. So that we were just hearing it. And that's partly because we didn't film it in front of an audience. And so we pretty much had to commit to what we thought was funny and then film it. Um, because a studio audience does actually help you find what's funny. Mm-hmm. So um, I think anything you can do to, um, to, to to give the jokes an airing, to give it a hearing, I think really does really does help. And just reading it with someone else. A scene which you thought was hilarious in the cold light of day, when you read it out loud, can sometimes be very embarrassing. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, we've, all, we've been in those situations of 
the tumbleweeds yeah. roll through yeah. the room of well, the great cream of British yeah. comedy is reading your words and they turn to dust yeah. and, Although sometimes that something turns out to be turns out to completely break up the room, and you thought, "Well, I didn't even think that was a joke." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. just the setup, you know. It's like, <laughs> yes. and then the actual joke comes; it's nowhere near as good as the setup. These things do happen. Can you, do you, can you think of any jokes you had to leave out of uh, Bluestone for two? Um, well, them. we we had a no joke left behind policy, <laughs> um, so we were quite good at keeping jokes, um, sort of on bits of paper and in files that we had to delete, but we thought, oh, we might be able to tuck that in somewhere else. So um, I'm sure we, I'm sure there were some spare jokes by the end that I would love to have got in somewhere else, but sometimes you just have to lose a whole scene, partly for time or partly because the overall scene doesn't work and you can't salvage a couple of good jokes. And normally I find, I had the luxury of being able to write um, 21 episodes of this thing, Normally, the chance to use that joke will come back, and if mm-hmm. you forget the joke, then it probably wasn't that good. And so, um, yeah. so these things tend to have a way of, you know, almost that like virus injury. They sort of creep back in. You, yeah. th- you thought you got rid of them, and then they come back again. Yeah. One of the things I wrote a couple of articles uh, about um, jokes um, for the British Comedy Guide a year ago or so, and uh, w- one of the things that I was trying to find out was uh, find people who had worked out what what. Uh, you know what? What is a joke? And I couldn't find anyone anywhere actually defining jokes. There's there's hardly anything. I mean, there are there are these books like the uh, book Jimmy Carr did that sort of talks about certain types of humour. Um, and but, but the naked the naked jape, yeah, which yeah. I've read and it's rather it's very good. good. Yeah, it's very it's good. good, and it's helped by having lots and lots of really funny jokes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, interspersed throughout. Um, but actually, you know, what is a joke? And uh, to kind of go back to the very basics of, of from a writing point of view, a joke is kind of like uh, any sort of um, three act drama. And of course, the three act drama, which is sort of Aristotle, was the first person to basically sit down and say every story has a beginning a middle and an end and that's 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 what the three act drama comes from there's a starting point and so you know a, um, a, a bloke walks into a bar so that's your act one of your joke because that's that's a sort of reality that's a sort of normal place that we're at and then uh, um but He's got uh, a sandwich on his head. That's <laughs> act. So act two has started. There's a complication. This man walks into a bar, which is familiar, but he has a sandwich on his head. All oh, right. So, so something complicated happened. We're in the middle of the story. We've got to resolve that story. Uh, and then the barman says, well, "You're banned." And um, so we come to the end of Act Two. This guy's going to say, "Why? Why am I banned? We don't serve sandwiches." Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Terrible, terrible joke. Really old joke, but just purely uh, for the purposes of illustration. So your act three is your punchline. And that's really what how how you write jokes. Um, and that's kind of, I don't know if there's much more to say in terms of actually writing it. But then, then I started to try and look up uh, different types of jokes. And again, there's not much... Not not much kind of academic research gone into this. Uh, Freud's written a book about jokes, apparently, which um, <laughs> yes. I haven't quite managed to get through. Um, but well, there's a there's a there's, but also um, I, I'm never I never tire of quoting Ken Dodd when he talks about Freud because uh, Ken Dodd's along along the lines of you know Freud's theories about comedy are all very well, but he's never played the second house yeah. of Glasgow Empire on a Friday night. <laughs> you think, well, yeah, that's you soon find out yeah. what a joke is in those yeah. situations. Mm. Well, but 
just just what what I what I did was I kind of made a very very rough list of the types of jokes uh, that there are, and it's it's you know it's not a definitive list, and things kind of uh, go into other lists at different times. And uh, the, the first the, the the sort of joke that's um, most common joke I think is where reality is turned on its head. Uh, so that's the joke of surprise, um, and these obviously when we're talking about sitcom and you're writing TV as much as radio then you're obviously you're looking for visual gags and uh, of course I mean the obvious one we think of the uh, only fools the horses the chandelier gag yeah uh, that's that's a surprise isn't it I mean when uh, Basil bashes his car with a with a branch <laughs> that's a visual we're not expecting that really no and no that's, that's a, it's really nice how he because hmm. the shot it just sticks onto the car hmm. and he runs hmm. off and you, the first time you see it, you do think, well, no, where, oh, he's, he's abandoned the car. Yeah. He's running for it. And then he runs back in with a branch and starts beating him in the daylight. So, so in terms of writing sitcom, again, you're looking at, um, you're looking to use these jokes for your characters and for your stories. I mean, do any spring to mind for you guys at all, turning reality on its head? Any, can you think of your favourite examples of that? Any spring to mind? Oh, goodness. I mean, in one sense, all jokes are realities turned on their head, and that's why I find categories really hard, because yeah. every joke is, to some extent, a surprise. Mm. But then the moment you say that, catchphrases aren't a surprise, and yet they mm. are effectively jokes. Mm. And we, we're, laughing at, we're laughing at them. Because, well, actually, this is your next category, isn't yeah. it? Recognition. Recognition, I feel, is a... Is, you can distinguish uh, surprise from recognition because although it's although it's a surprise um, when you watch, say, someone like Michael McIntyre doing stand-up, uh, it's also something that is that is in a very familiar world to you. And so, I'm not. This is a, again something I always recommend people should watch. There's a three-minute routine that Michael McIntyre does about somebody running to get onto the tube, and um, the whatever you think about this guy he's most he he gets so many laughs packed into 3 minutes uh, which is a long time in yeah. comedy just describing a man getting into a tube running <laughs> into the tube as the mm. doors are closing mm. and obviously for those of us in london that's just, that's <laughs> everything about that is familiar yeah. and everything about his description is familiar but the way that he manages to build that story uh is is fantastic and there are there is no the only surprise in it is that we're just it's 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 not so much surprise i suppose as enjoyment of his interpretation of a thing that we that of the everyday really so that's that's yeah. that's slightly different from surprise i would say yeah no it's no no i agree i, I yeah. think in one sense what he what the, the surprise is the thing that he does is he like all observational comedians it it makes something of a thing that you thought that only you'd noticed mm. it it's very skilled at just sort of noticing something that you had noticed but hadn't even noticed that you'd noticed mm. um, and I think that can happen with observational comedy but it can also happen in, in sitcoms when you do have a particular character that feels fresh and original and yet it feels like you know someone like that I mean that's the skill of David Brent is mm. you you just feel that you know someone like David Brent <laughs> um, and you know a boss who thinks he is the best boss in the world and is the worst boss in the world yeah. it really is quite simple yeah um and, you know, a boss who thinks he's nothing... You're basically a chilled-out entertainer. You know, it's just like, oh, it's sort of toe-curling. And, yeah, there is that recognition there. And I think characters 
do have this recognition factor about them. Uh, more conventional sitcoms, so sitcoms like Friends, I would say, and and uh, My Family. Um, you know, these are these are sitcoms about sort of regular, ordinary people. Yeah. Even they're not really even those sort of monster type characters. Mm. But there, I think there's a there's a, rec- a lot of recognition in in the the sort of the co- or Seinfeld, the sort of the comedy of manners of Seinfeld. Of you know how 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 do you react in certain situations and kind of dissecting of that in Seinfeld it's very for me that's very funny Seinfeld yeah Seinfeld does the observational thing it sort of sick, turns it into a sitcom with the like oh he's a re-gifter he's, they give a name to something like yeah. if you're given a gift and then you give it to someone else that makes right. you a re-gifter yeah. and they sort of yeah. turn it into a phenomenon where you just think oh I thought that I was the only person that had yeah. spotted that and yeah. they're very clever at doing that mm. Then the next one, and I really am going to turn intellectual on you mm. now. This is uh, this is a quote from uh, Immanuel Kant, the seventeenth uh, century uh, philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, which talks about uh, jokes as a, a strained tension into nothing. Uh, which I think that sounds a... so like Immanuel Kant. That's so that's so Kant, isn't it? That's so Kant. Yes, uh, but I like that because that that does describe perfectly the sort of uh, the, the jokes about, like you have a sort of pompous character and and you, you prick the bubble of that that the, the pomposity of that character. And I think of sort of people like like uh, Frasier, for instance, you know, who who is a very pompous sort of person, and then someone will come, Niles will undercut something he says and it, and it is it's it's a, it's bursting the bubble of of their of, of what they think about themselves there's also i mean schadenfreude would come in there as well which uh, um as in you know people yeah. getting their comeuppance um strain tension into nothing there makes me think of the very much as we were mentioning earlier the modern thing of characters who are already broken um strain tension mm. to nothing just makes me think of the detectorists um, I don't know if that's how it's meant to be, but the into nothing, you know what I mean? There's just this kind of, there's this sort of, I don't know if you, I mean, Alex, you watch a lot of, of comedy. To what extent do you find this? I mean, Kant was a sort of an existentialist, uh, an existentialist <laughs> philosopher of sorts. I managed to avoid reading some of his stuff for my theology degree. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> but do you, I mean... Oh, you really meant that about Immanuel Kant? Yeah. 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 Right. yeah so <laughs> I, 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 I almost know what I'm talking about. Oh, right. okay. um, but I don't know. I just find that... But people seem to find that funny, don't yeah. they? The, the, the existentialism yeah. and the nothingness of it. It's sort of left hang, something left hanging in the air. That yeah. You're presented with a funny situation, but there aren't necessarily those kind of lines or... Things that really sort of under underpin what the funny is, but it's sort of just hanging there. Yeah. And some people love that kind of humour, and some people aren't such big fans. I quite like series like that. I mean, I'm, I really um, loved him and her, which I think had a, obviously a different tone to Detectorists in that it's ruder and younger and grubbier, but um, has that similar kind of the the uh, the atmosphere is a lot of the humour, I suppose. Um, hmm. Yeah. I think, but, but I think there's also that there's. Uh, the, the, again, to show off the, t- the, t- the two words that I know that uh, aren't <laughs> English, um, bathos and pathos, in fact, that, that uh, sounds like a really bad double act, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bathos as, as in anti-climax. And so, I mean, that's not just something that you see in, in, in kind of off, off-ball uh, shows you see that in very conventional shows, mm. uh, and the, the, the horrible version of it being um, the the end of the scene where and 
uh, what's, what's the, the bicycle uh, phrase? You won't you won't see me getting on that bicycle. Bicycle. Cut, cut to them on a bicycle. bicycle. I can't believe you got me to do this. <laughs> yes. um, and then, but the, then pathos, which is much harder to do, and that's where I think that's where sort of mm. the good sitcoms become great sitcoms, where they have kind of moments of, of real sadness. And yeah. you know, something like Only Fools and Horses got to that point about sort of six or seven series in, mm. but the, to then they then would undercut it with a joke and 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 the relief of the audience that that string yeah. string tension into mm. nothing there that feels like I'm thinking of the um I must have mentioned on this podcast before even after any few episodes that we've done it's the porridge one where he has to tell Godber to go down in the in the fifth round mm. and got you know yeah. and Godber says I can't go in the fifth round you know, I'm already going down in the second round or whatever it is <laughs> yeah. for somebody else yeah. and it's just <laughs> It's such, they really do make the most of it. They really do draw yeah. it out. And it's absolutely beautiful. Because in one sense, they completely have their cake and eat it. They have the emotion of the situation and they really suck you in. And then they just do this huge, great big raspberry in your face. Yeah. It's wonderful. So, and again, as, as we say, there are also these kind of uh, blurred distinctions between these various types. But um, I suppose what you mentioned there, I would say more the next category really is kind of unpredictable. Uh, joke, jokes that are unpredictable and that tends to be something like uh, wordplay, you know, puns, knock-knock jokes, whatever, innuendo, th- stuff that subverts our language but also the, the kind of surrealist humour and again that's something that that, that uh, there's, I'd say there's been quite an increase in um, and I know, you know Vic and Bob kind of often cited as the, sort of the, the kind of the, the grandfathers of the surrealist comedy um, but I, I noticed from you know some of your choices, you're, you're, yeah. you're quite a fan of the I, surreal comedy. Yeah, I do enjoy that kind of thing because I, I think that um, you're talking about surprises just now, and I think that um, my favourite kind of humour is the stuff that really does knock you sideways and um, you know recognisable situations all very well, but you know something something that takes you into a world you never would have expected. So. Bob Mortimer sitting in House of Fools with a wig of Watsits on his head. To me, mm. it's hilarious, yeah. <laughs> and it's something you'd never, you'd never imagine. So, um, that's that's the sort of comedy that really makes my heart sing. Is that kind of thing where you just are blindsided by something that you never would have expected. But I recognise that there's a more limited market for that kind of thing, mm. and it's it's not think, everybody's cup of tea. Mm, what 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 works for me for Vic and Bob and for Mighty Boosh is that that there is a very conventional double act at the heart of it mm. and so that for me is the sort of the act one normality is that I I, <laughs> I kind of let them I, I, I can appreciate that humour because I'm already enjoying the, the sort of the, the, the kind of best mates relationship yeah. that I've grew up with with Morgan Wise or whatever yeah. so but it's when it for me I find it hard when the surrealism just kind of seems to come from out of nowhere really and I think there's a few few shows I've seen where that that, that seems to be sure. the case but um, so very quickly we'll just got two more two more types of joke again um, we've got um, talk about satire which is probably the oldest joke form and satire satire does not mean jokes about the prime minister okay satire mm-hmm. is uh, jokes addressing the folly of power through uh, usually through song or rhyme form so the oldest joke that's from 
Aristophanes, by the way. Mm-hmm. 2,000, more than 2,000 years old, the definition L- of satire. Literally the old ones are the best. Yes, yes. <laughs> I've never read any Aristophanes, I have to admit, but I'm sure there's some very funny jokes about the current uh, leader at the... Freud, <laughs> Kant, Aristophanes. Yeah, I know. Goodness <laughs> me, what on don't earth tell is going me. on? We don't, we don't yeah. spoil you on this show. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think... One, of, one day we'll um, actually read some of this stuff that we're talking about. <laughs> but um, I mean, I think of satire, not as shows like Have I Got News For You, but I think something like Peep Show to me is a, is a great, uh, has great sort of satire elements to it. I mean, any, anyone think of other mm. examples that you would think, well, that's that's quite a satirical show. It t- it's t- taking, you know, it's a, attacking power. Um, well, I guess the obvious one is the political one, which would be the uh, Yes Prime Minister, which yeah. is my favourite sitcom of all time. Mm. There's a sense in which... It's what what's what I find so good about it is it's so it you can still watch it now and it's still really funny because it's it's about it's it's about power and how to use it and how not to use it and how to make compromises and what politics actually is. There's a sense in which it's um I mean satire is is sort of quite a crude form really in some ways, like um I'm thinking, oh let's, let's go clever again, let's go swift with his <laughs> modest proposal for um that that uh, the Irish should eat their children uh, in the famine, and it's sort of it's sort of a long drawn out one single point that's crudely made to make an overall big point, and that's that's fine. But actually, I, the thing I, I think the reason I like Yes Prime Minister so much is that it is um, so broad in its scope. It is about the human condition. It is about how to make things better and how impossible it is to do that because the very political system by which we're trying to do it is in itself. Um, going to master you and make you cause compromises to the point where it, you might as well not have bothered trying. Um, so yeah, that would be that would be my obvious one. Obviously. Okay. All right. Well, then the last uh, form of joke that I'm going to um, talk about, just because these are this is my mm. list and it's not the definitive list. I say, if you've got any more, if you think of any more, uh, tell us. Write to us, sitcomgeeks at gmail dot com, uh, with your ideas of types of joke. Uh, cruelty is the last one, and we think of cruelty, we tend to think of you know Jimmy Carr or uh, Frankie Boyle or whatever, but actually. Cruelty is uh, there's a long history of cruelty really in comedy or comedy. Uh, Shakespeare had it. Uh, Laurel and Hardy is mm. you know they kind of uh, here's a here's a funny fat man falling on his backside and and here's the little wimpy man next to him and as soon as he gets told off he starts crying you know. Uh, Morecambe and Wise you know Eric Morecambe is. If, if you took the laughter track away from what one does, it'll be, it's the most horrible bullying. He slaps it, physically slaps his face. Yeah. And he's always just being rude to him, to his face, about him, uh, insulting. Um, but, you know, we kind of, we, it's cruel. It is cruelty. And, 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 you know, there is a lot of cruelty in comedy. I'm just trying to think of a sitcom that, how kind of cruelty works in sitcoms, really. But I think, um, I mean... And most characters, you know... Well, but I think... But, but, uh, but underlying those relationships between Lauren Hardy or Mork and Wise, there is that bedrock of friendship that they have. Hmm. And that's why... I don't want to carp on about my own work, but with, with Bluestone, they're soldiers, and soldiers are horrible to each other. But there is... But the underlying affection is unspoken and taken for granted, and, you know, dare not speak its name, really. So... I think, I don't know, I, I, I think cruelty is, it, it feels like there's a very special situation in which it can work, and it tends to be 
and a, and a relationship that may be taken for granted, but is there nonetheless. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I, I find categories really hard just because you sort of immediately think of... It's like when, they, when people say that there are only seven stories... Mm-hmm. And then somebody says, "Oh no, but there's mm-hmm. there's, uh, there, there's actually only three stories." And then, "Oh, those three stories are only basically yeah. one story." There's only one word yeah. in the entire English <laughs> language. Yeah, so everything is exactly. derived from that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's that's true. But um, anyway, if anyone uh, listening to the show comes across a, um, a, a an alternative set of ca- criteria. <laughs> Uh, mm. We would love to hear them because uh, Dave has so far not found them mm. and would uh, be enlightened. If anyone's actually read Freud or Swift or uh, mm. Aristophanes mm. again, we, we but I mean, I think that, I mean the point is just to show. I mean, it's, it's obviously uh, depending on the sort of sitcom you're writing and, the, and and what you're after, really. But 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 be aware there are there are many ways, many different. Uh, even if you're doing something that seems like it's a topic, uh, a satirical show, mm. it doesn't have to just be topical comedy. You, there are all these other uh, other ways of making jokes but do please make them make them mm. and it's very easy so just going back to the, uh, the very last thought really as we uh, career towards the end of this um, podcast which is over which is hitting 40 minutes already mm-hmm. um is that anything that makes you think about jokes in your scenes uh, in a different way in a new way just to think how can i turn the situation on its head how can i add jokes to this scene quite often the scene isn't set up correctly that's the main problem and there are ways of of sprinkling jokes over things to make it look as if everything's okay when actually possibly it isn't. Sometimes there is a deep-rooted problem that you need to get to the bottom of. But if you can think of turning reality on its head, recognition, strain tension towards nothing, um, any of these categories will, will help you in your scenes. Because you really do need to be thinking every three, four lines, is there a joke? Is this, is this going to make a room full of people laugh? And if it isn't, I would say you probably need to fix that. But we've already said that there are quite a lot of sitcoms which don't seem to want to make quite so many jokes. And we shall, we shall talk to Alex about those next time. Oh, shall we? Um, can I just add as well that please I mean, do. So there are um, some sitcoms that um, have sort of some kind of structural element that means you can build more jokes in. So Peep Show, you've got the running narrative of you know the point of view stuff and yeah. Car Share, where you had the um, radio. You know, it's essentially a sketch show as well mm. because they had the radio adverts and so on that so sort of there are sometimes the structural ways you can organize your sitcom to make Mm. sure that you're filling all the blank space so to speak that's a really good point uh, miranda just talking directly to the audience Mm. i mean if you can find a way in your sitcom of cheating i thoroughly (laughs) advise you to do that because there are no points for not cheating so on that uh, cheaty note um (laughs) let's wrap this up thank you very much alex and uh see you next time Thank you to the Soho Theatre who have kindly uh, given us a corner of their offices in a small room to mm-hmm. uh, record this podcast. We're very grateful to Soho Theatre. Please support this show. We don't ask you for money. At least we haven't yet. But please like us on Facebook. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be a nice thing to do. Or introduce a friend to the podcast. You could buy my book called Writing That Sitcom. It wouldn't make a very good Christmas present because it's an ebook. I don't know how you give an ebook for Christmas. You can physically get my book. You can physically get Dave's book called How to Be Averagely Successful at Comedy. And that's all that we have for now. So tune in next time. Say goodbye, Dave. Bye. Bye, Alex. Bye. Bye, Katie. Bye. Bye. Bye.